in the official calendar of the church year, today is Palm Sunday, the day that we commemorate the entrance of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem for the week that led up to his resurrection. It was a party atmosphere in Jerusalem at the time. Hundreds of thousands of Jewish people, if not millions, some estimate, from around the world had gathered in the capital city of Jerusalem, the former kingdom of Israel, uh, to celebrate the Passover in the temple. Our gospel writers have stories of Jesus entering the city uh, on the back of a donkey, which was sort of the victorious stance of a conquering ruler. Jesus entered into the city on the back of this donkey amidst hundreds and hundreds of people lining the way into the city, and they were waving palm branches and throwing the palm branches along the path in front of him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, recognizing in a way Jesus as God's Messiah, as the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the anointed one. The story is often put under the title, The Triumphal Entry. The tradition of churches is to hand out palm branches or palm leaves to everyone who is in attendance on that on Palm Sunday, uh, maybe even have a pro procession from outside into the building or somewhere in the building into the sanctuary and people waving their palm branches. And this, this Sunday of the calendar year, uh, Palm Sunday would be the kickoff for a number of activities throughout Holy Week recreating and commemorating many of the events of that historic week. And it would culminate one week later with the commemoration of Easter Sunday and the resurrection. All of that made great sense a long time ago. When people attended multiple gatherings at the church in the same week, when the, the church essentially provided opportunities not only for religious meaning, but for so social gathering, even for entertainment. But the church hasn't had that role in people's lives in a long time, at least certainly not up in this mossy corner of the U.S. So the problem for me is that if we make a big deal of Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and then most of us won't be gathering again until the next Sunday, Easter, we basically go from one celebration of Jesus to another celebration of Jesus. And we miss out on the crucial events that happen between those two points. Between Palm Sunday and Easter, all those people who had gathered alongside of the road, hailing Jesus and his triumphal entry, 
by the end of the week had deserted him. Almost every single one had deserted him, including his closest disciples, at least the men. At the, towards the end of the week upon Jesus' crucifixion and death, the only small group of people who had stood by him, with him, the whole time was a small group of women. We hear reference to a couple of them, to two of that group, in this morning's scripture in verse 47 at the very end. They roll the the stone in front of the, Joseph rolls the stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph. I said Hosus earlier. This I was this morning on a. Um, I celebrated the uh, anniversary of the founding of the church in Cincinnati um, this morning. I was part of their worship service, and so I was kind of in Spanish mode there. But as Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, uh, saw where, she wa- where he was laid, where the body of Jesus was laid. When we skip over all the other events of Holy Week, we get a very distorted picture of Jesus' life. And as disciples of Jesus who are supposed to follow him in our own lives, we get a very distorted picture of what our lives should look like. None of us go from victory to victory, from acclaim to acclaim with nothing in between. But neither did Jesus. In fact, Jesus experienced what many people of his time considered the worst possible defeat that a supposed Messiah could experience. Death by a stronger power. However, what our scriptures reveal to us is the exact opposite. Jesus' death was, in reality, his true triumphal entry. And by us facing the reality of Jesus' death, we learn to face our own. Admittedly, the scene looks far from victorious. Rather, it looks as though death has triumphed. Notice how many times the dead body of Jesus is emphasized in just this short story. It was preparation day, uh, just before Sabbath. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of council, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus's body. Pilate's surprised that Jesus is already dead. He summons the uh, Centurion to make sure is, has he really is he really already dead is the body already a body and no life in it and the centurion assures him. And verse forty five is important. When Pilate learned from the centurion that it was so, Pilate gave the body to Joseph. The body is the way the NIV translates it, but it's a very unusual word. It's not used very often. And it means more literally the corpse. It's a very distinct and vivid word. The corpse 
he delivered the corpse of Jesus to Joseph. Like I said, it's, it's a very unusual use. Usually it's soma uh, for body. But here, the whole emphasis on what's happening is that this is the lifeless body of Jesus. And so Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, and then wrapped it in linen and placed it in the tomb cut out, out of a rock. And here I actually like what the NIV does. Most of the other translations use the pronoun he because it can serve both purposes, it or he in the, the Greek. But I like the NIV's emphasis here that it's, it's more of an it at this point than Jesus, than him, the personal savior that people had come to know. So the, the, the corpse of Jesus is what is emphasized in this story. And certainly this corpse doesn't make any sort of triumphant parade-like entry into anywhere. His corpse is hauled into a tomb. And rather than laying down palm leaves and, and waving palm branches and setting them before him, Joseph lays down burial cloths on stone. He even had to roll, Joseph did, had to roll a giant boulder to block the entrance of the tomb so that no wild animals would wander in and start gnawing on the carcass. The general practice for dealing with dead bodies of the time was to wrap the body in uh, spices and cloth. The spices, uh, I mean, the, the, the spices were meant to essentially help temper the odor of the decaying corpse. And the cloths held all of everything together, the spices and the decaying body. The wrapped body was placed in a, uh, essentially a shelf that was carved out of a granite uh, cave. The wrapped body was left for up to a year or two in the tomb so that by the time they went back, the only things left were the bones. The bones would then be put into a granite container uh, called an ossuary, and it would be left for good as a permanent resting place somewhere else, usually in the same tomb, in the same cave. In our story, since the Sabbath evening was about to begin, the burial process for Jesus' body was rushed. We hear in our story that once the, the corpse was given to Joseph, he went, verse 46, bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in the tomb. There wasn't even time enough for him to buy the spices that were meant to be wrapped in with the body. And that's why the women in later stories, uh, the Easter stories, the women went, by, went back so early in the morning on Sunday was to finish the burial process, to, to pack the body in spices before it went too far.
So our story ends with the dead body of Jesus only partially prepared for burial and closed in a tomb. As I said, it does not sound very triumphant. But then listen again to how the author of our Greek New Testament reading looks at this. From Hebrews, again, I'll skip over, sort of skim the first part. Um, God didn't put angels in charge of the business of salvation. God made man and woman a little lower than the angels. Uh, and when God put the humans in charge of everything, nothing was excluded, but we don't see it yet. Um, what we do see is Jesus, who originally was, again, like us humans, made not quite as high as the angels. And then, through the experience of death, Jesus was crowned so much higher than any angel with a glory bright with Eden's dawnlight. Through his death, he was crowned. Crowning is something you do to someone who's victorious. It's a triumphant gesture. And we begin to get a sense of what Jesus accomplished in his death and what follows. In that death, by God's grace, Jesus fully experienced death in every person's place. So he took on the death of all human beings. Then verse 10, it makes good sense uh, that the God who got everything started, keeps everything going, now completes the work by making the salvation pioneer perfect through suffering as he leads all these people to glory. Again, here's this strange contrast between he leads people through through suffering to glory. Somehow it's the suffering that leads to the glory and leads us into that same, as if it's a victory parade of sorts. Again, it goes over some of the ways in which uh, Jesus recognizes uh, his, his humanity, shares it with us. And then in verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy the one who holds the power of death, that is the devil. By his death he destroyed the, one, the power of the one who holds death and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by fear of death. So Jesus' death is the means for rescuing humanity. That is, this is the great turning point in the history of humanity. Death itself was killed, was dealt a, fa a fatal blow. Death no longer holds us in its grip, holds us in its power. Its power has been broken by the greater power of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus' resurrection to new life in this world, what we celebrate essentially every Sunday, is revealed to the world 
that death, uh, I mean, excuse me, Jesus' resurrection reveals to the world that death has been defeated. But it's this story here in this moment that the actual victory takes place, that Jesus' own death defeats the devil's hold on death. Death gives its all to end Jesus permanently, but Jesus absorbs that blow and essentially says, is that all you got? Honestly, I was reminded as I was thinking of this, of uh, some of you will remember this, but not all of you, but um, the time when Muhammad Ali used the rope-a-dope strategy against George Foreman in their heavyweight boxing championship in 1974 in Uganda, the rumble in the jungle. Ali, for the first numerous rounds, basically just clinched up against the ropes and let George Foreman just pound on him. And Foreman was furious, incredibly strong guy. And so for round after round, George Foreman is just pounding on Ali. And there were commentators who thought Ali literally might be killed. But Ali had actually been training for this exact strategy. He let Foreman just pound on him and pound on on him, looking like he was going to go down, he was going to be defeated. And then Foreman basically tired himself out. He spent all his energy and didn't take out Ali. And then in the latter rounds, Ali started to dance around and attack in flurries. And Ali eventually won that fight, even though it looked horrible at the beginning. So too in our story, but in a far more consequential way. Jesus was literally killed. And as we emphasize in our Apostles' Creed, dead and buried in a tomb. But what looked like total defeat turned out to be total victory. And now Christ leads us all triumphantly into the experience of death and out of it. I like the way the British poet Malcolm Geith puts it in his 13th sonnet of the uh, Stations of the Cross. This one is Jesus' body is taken down from the cross. His spirit and his life he breathes in all. Now on this cross his body breathes no more. Here at the center everything is still spent and emptied, opened to the core. A quiet taking down, a prizing loose, a crossbeam lowered like a weighing scale. Unmaking of each thing that had its use, a long withdrawing of each bloodied nail. This is ground zero, emptiness and space with nothing left to say or think or do. But look unflinching on the sacred face that cannot move or change or look at you. Yet in that prizing loose and letting be, he has unfastened you and set you free. 
He has unfastened you and set you free. As Guite puts it, Jesus' dead body being taken off the cross in a way unfastens us from death and sets us free. But also, as he says, only if we look unflinchingly at it, only if we truly face Jesus' death and our own. Far too often in the United States, like I was saying with the kids, we avoid truly confronting the reality of death. Most dead bodies are covered and removed from any view within minutes. Most people now have memorial services rather than a traditional funeral. And even when a casket is present, in our tradition, most often it's closed. Even when there is a graveside service where we're at the place of burial, most cemeteries these days cover every speck of dirt with astroturf of all things. I usually have to literally search for a place to gather some dirt if I want to use it in that sign of from earth we come to earth we will return. We rarely see human death in person. The great writer and mortician Thomas Lynch blames our disassociation with death on Thomas Crapper. Yes, the inventor of the flush toilet. That was his name, Thomas Crapper, the inventor of the flush toilet. Here's Lynch from his book, The Undertaking, Life Studies from the Dismal Trade. Um, The thing about the new toilet is that it removes the evidence in such a hurry. The flush toilet, more than any single invention, has quote-unquote civilized us in a way that religion and law could never accomplish. No more the morning office of the chamber pot or the outhouse, where sights and sounds and odors reminded us of the corruptibility of flesh. Since Crapper's marvelous invention, we need only pull the lever behind us and the evidence disappears, a kind of rapture that removes the nuisance. But having lost the regular necessity of dealing with unpleasantries, we have lost the ability to do so when the need arises. And we have lost the community well-versed in these calamities. We see this in death, he notes. We are embarrassed by them the way that we are embarrassed by a toy. We see this with our dead, not death. We see this with our dead, the bodies. We are embarrassed by them in a way that we are embarrassed by a toilet that overflows the night that company comes. It's an emergency. We call the plumber. He goes on to talk about how in, in previous times, most of life's significant events, both life and death, occurred in the home with everyone participating. Births, christenings, illnesses, dating, weddings, and deaths, and wakes with the body present. 
Many of those events took place in a room called the parlor. So it is, uh, excuse me, but as we sanitized our actions on the toilet and brought it indoors, we sanitized many of the other events of life and death by taking them out of the home. And it's no coincidence, he writes, that the place that became the place for funerals was called the funeral parlor. He goes on, just this one more quote. Just as bringing the crapper indoors has made feces an embarrassment, pushing the dead and dying out has made death one. Often I am asked as a mortician to deal with the late uncle in the same way that we deal with bad curry, out of sight and out of mind. Make it go away, disappear, push the button, pull the chain, get on with life. Trouble is, of course, that life, as any 15-year-old can tell you, is full of crap and has but one death. And to ignore our excrement might be good form, while to ignore our mortality creates an imbalance a kind of spiritual irregularity, psychic impaction, a bunging up of our humanity, <laughs> a denial of our very nature. It's a funny way to look at it. Uh, but the, the, the overall point that he is making is that we have lost much of our recognition of death and dying as a part of human life in the full spectrum of it. And because of that, the sad thing is because of that, there are still, many of us are still under the power of death because of fear, fear of death. And that's why we recall the words of the wise one in Ecclesiastes, not because they are morbid, but because they free us to appreciate life. As the teacher wrote, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of every man and woman. The living should take this to heart. Facing the reality and meaning of Jesus' death allows us to face the reality of our own death without fear. I'll close with, again, a little bit from our Hebrews Greek New Testament reading. Since the children are made of flesh and blood, it's logical that the Savior took on flesh and blood in order to rescue them by his death, by embracing death, Taking it into himself, he destroyed the devil's hold on death and freed all who cower through life, scared to death of death. Jesus' death was his true triumphal entry and ours. Thanks be to God.